Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. It's the week's big breaking story, the South African Airways strike. As we record now, uh, some South African Airways planes still grounded, some flying, but the unions threatening sympathy strikes at um, some of the subsidiaries and uh, indeed across the industry. Sikonati Manchacha, your column the other day chronicled the amount of money that has gone into keeping SAA aloft over the years and asked the question of whether this can possibly be worth it. Tell us what you said. So what, what I did was go back all the years, all the audited uh, published financial statements of South African Airways and the bailouts amounts to 55 billion rand since it was spun out of Transnet and before that. Let's repeat this, 55 billion rand in cash bailouts. The damn thing has never, can I say that word on TV? Uh, <laughs> the thing has never made, uh, it has never made a profit bar one year in 2010, which was on a technicality, uh, even that. It has never made a trading profit. Uh, it's, it's, it We're looking at a 20-year period. Yes, yes. Uh, 23 years. 23. In, in 23 years, South African Airways has not paid tax, income tax to, 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 to the government. They, they don't even think they know what a dividend is. Uh, they, they don't know what profit is. You and I, what, what they do know is, is, is cash bailout. And they know, uh, they, they know what a loss is because that's what they're living for. They have, in the last 13 years... Uh, they, they have reported a net loss of 28 billion rand. Now add 28 billion rand to 55 billion rand, you get 83 billion rand that has just been flushed down uh, the river, never coming back. And guess what? Their mouths are still wide open. They are begging for more money. As you can see now, they, they've crippled the airline further with, with a demand for 8%. The inflation rate, we've just been told by Statistics KSA, oh. uh, is, is now 3.7%. Uh, it's dropped to an 11-year low. South African Airways has, has, has offered them a 5.9% increase. South African Airways still has outstanding debt of 9.6 billion rand. And for the company... To, to, to keep going, to be a going concern, Tito Mboweni needs to sign a check of 13.4 billion rand and hand it over to them. Uh, we are talking easily 120 billion rand that, uh, that, that has been sunk into South Africa. So the bottom, and what have we got in return for the 120 we've got uh, We've got 10,000 and 71 fat uh, uh, people who get uh, huge salaries from South African Airways. We've got trade unions getting all the way, all, all the richer. We've got all the tenderpreneurs and all the, 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 the corruption uh, in the ANC and indeed on the board of South African Airways and in the government. That's what we've been paying for. Nothing in the way of economic benefit to anybody. Claudia Malovich, your eyes are popping out of your head at the, 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 the sight of those numbers. What are the politics behind this? I mean, why does government continue to be committed to South African Airways? What are the interest groups? Hilary, I'm going to pass that over to our beautiful Deputy Editor of Financial Mail, Natasha. <laughs> to explain. <laughs> yes. Um, why does government continue to It is a vanity project. And exactly as Sikonati mentioned, it's been a cash cow for tenderpreneurs, for politicians, for, um, you know, board members, for uh, the, CEO, the erstwhile CEO of, of SAA. It's been that cash cow. It's a vanity project. It's all about ego. Um, interestingly enough, in the last ANC-NEC meeting, 
they decided that, uh, well, you know, SAA was expendable. It's the furthest that they've gone in the last 25 years in terms of this nightmare uh, to the South African taxpayer called SAA. Um, but we still don't know what exactly that means. Are they willing to have an equity partner on board? But which, frankly, which equity partner wants to come on board to such a dis to disaster? To people to take it away. Exactly. Warren Thompson, do we not need a national carrier? I don't think uh, we do, uh, Hilary. I've always advanced the idea, if you're going to use a national carrier, you use it strategically like Mauritius does, where you, you look to place the flights from parts of the world that you don't get tourists. For instance, uh, the vast provinces in the interior of China. You open up routes with the national airline. You get uh, make sure your visa mechanism process works in that country, and you start using your national airline to run at a loss to fly people from different parts of the world that never came or have never traditionally traveled to South Africa. Uh, you then do a cost-benefit analysis and you figure out how much revenue the country generates from uh, flying that subsidized passenger from China into the country and you, uh, you can run the airline on that basis. But that has never, so far as I've heard, entered the mouths of the people that run the airline to think strategically about that. Um, but certainly, if you look at uh, Mauritius, uh, Air Mauritius uh, runs subsidized flights to get tourists like me and my family to go to Mauritius and enjoy their beaches. And they know that by making those flights more affordable, uh, they will be generating X amount of revenues from me via my stay in hotels and uh, my drinking habits, etc., etc. And that's the way you can then justify the losses you're running. But when it's uh, as if inefficient as this and there's no... Uh, broad and, and clear plan about how to use uh, a national airline strategically, uh, it's as Sikonati says, it's just a, 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 a single of, of corruption. No, Mauritius knows he's a journalist, so they pack all the <laughs> things. Thank you, Actually, if it was us, we wouldn't let the children in because, you know, we'd, ex well, until very recently, we would have expected extended birth certificates and various other affidavits. Yes. Right. <laughs> Hilary, the, the biggest thing that keeps South African Airways going or for the government to give our monies to South African Airways going. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, uh, this SA Cabin Crew Association, the National Transport Movement, SATAU, uh, all of them, they all extract 1% of, uh, of the fees of the salaries paid to, uh, to the employees of, of the company for, for, for union subscriptions. You close down South African Airways, they are not so happy at Comair, uh, you close down South African Airways, you've cost uh, Ivan Jim and his people uh, about, uh, so the companies pay about uh, 6 billion rand per, per annum in, in, in salaries. You've cost them 1% of that, uh, the trade unions, and, and then you, they, they are going to start marching against you. And that is what this government is afraid of. But again, we have moved a step further. Uh, when, when uh, as Natasha said, in, in the ANC resolution, they said it's, ex it's expendable. This week, Pravin Godan said in New York uh, that uh, South African Airways is not too big to fail, and we actually can do without it. Uh, that's now following directly in the footsteps of Tito Mboweni, who's gone even further and has got the soberest view of them all. So it, it lost the damn thing down. Claudie, I mean, people have talked about the SAA moment. I mean, is this the moment when government stands up to the unions and does the way the strike is handled have, have implications for you know for government's relationships with unions in general 
Well, I would think that government has to stand up to the unions right now because the reality is if you keep feeding money into like vanity projects, as Natasha described it, in the end, what is the impact on actual jobs? If you look at unions that have to represent workers, well, that's all good and well, but we have a 29% unemployment rate in this country. So if we need to start looking at, if we have to protect some jobs, well, protect what you can, but in the end, you can't make ridiculous demands, uh, demands my apologies. Um, especially if you look at, as Sikonati pointed out, the inflation rates. I don't know if there's any company in the country currently and any worker in this country that can be unhappy with, what did you say, 5.6%? An inflation rate of 3.7% yes. is actually quite something, today's it, it, figures. Yeah. Yeah. It, does, it does change the whole frame. of It, it should play, it, change the frame of wage demand. It, it totally changes it, but uh, the piece you referenced earlier I wrote for Daily Maverick, the point I'm making there is this is a proxy fight. The, the unions are trying to, uh, to, 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 to set the, the, the base for what they are going to do at, at, at ESCOM. Because South African Airways right now, we're talking about 5,000 people employed in the airline and uh, 1,000, less than 1,000 people who stand to lose their jobs. ESCOM has got 46,000 people and the same trade unions are organizing there. If they can put the government on the back foot and win at, at South African Airways, then they, they, they will basically set the, uh, the, the scene for the restructuring of ESCOM and how it is to be done. It is in their interest as trade unions to win this fight. But, uh, and, and I make the point that if the government cedes ground to them now, it can forget about restructuring the whole economy, can forget about ESCOM. The trade unions will dictate terms and that is nothing changes. Speaking of which, Natasha Marion, a new chief executive at ESCOM, Finally appointed, Andre Dureta, ex Sassol, ex Nampak. His appointment has not been greeted with the kind of excitement in the, even in the markets that one might have expected. Um, why has this appointment not gone down very well, as far as you um, can it's, see? It, it is a long-awaited appointment. Uh, we've been waiting for it for, for many, many months. Um, in political circles, circles and even among the unions, um, the issue of transformation has come to the fore with regard to the appointment. Um, there's a, you know, there's a, a, a bizarre um, trend we have that we, I was speaking to someone from the Public Enterprises Department and he said, what happened to non-racialism um, in South Africa where, you know, you have one appointment and the ANC Youth League, the ANC Women's League, uh, the unions are ham hammering on solely on the fact that this individual happens to be um, a white. So, so you know, there's, there's a, a lot of other issues surrounding uh, the debate on, on his appointment. But the bottom line is, this is a bloody difficult job to do. Um, he was willing to take a pay cut and um, he was, he's willing to do it. The problem uh, for the public enterprise this department and for um, uh, ESCOM is that nobody's been willing to do this job. And uh, my understanding is that there was some last minute uh, political interventions. Um, uh, you know, there were rumors that Andy Kalitz was, was the front runner for the post. But um, that too was, was, was a fraught, um, you know, a, a fraught process. And, and there, the, in political circles, his appointment was roundly rejected, which is why we are where we are. And um, So they sort of rejected one white person to appoint another the, white person. And, and Warren Thompson, I mean, just we've just got a couple of minutes left. But it's not just the fact that he's white that seems to have raised concerns, but his track record. Uh, NAMPAC, is, is, is the concern justified? Very quickly. 
I think a little bit, uh, Hilary. I mean, obviously, the share price performance of NAMPAC uh, during his five-year tenure has been uh, very uh, negative. If you look, at, I think it's lost about 80% of its value. 84%. 84% of its value. So from that uh, perspective, that's not very encouraging at all. Obviously, uh, Mr. DeRator also has extensive experience in SASOL, which means that he uh, has a very good understanding of the, of the country's energy system. But uh, it's a little bit compounding because NAMPAC is a big client of Eskom, and anyone who's been in manufacturing knows that those costs have been escalating largely because of Eskom, and that's, uh, that's going to be very difficult for him to kind of manage going forward. We are not done with the Eskom CEO yet. Sikunati Manchacha, you are concerned, unconcerned, impressed. What are the dynamics here? So we should be careful if we're trying to build a future for this country of uh, being pity and being led by the most uh, mediocre uh, of people. The people who are talking about the race in the, in, in, in the appointment of the ESCOM chief executive office, even for, UNRWA, uh, uh, for, for, the, for Andy Khalid, the, the, the reason he was being rejected politically was, was because he was a white man and nobody knew who else had applied. It's only the, the peripheral, the noisemakers, the, the, those, those people who have got nothing better to do with their lives, who've got absolutely no ideas. There's not a statue anywhere in the world built to a critic. Serious people, uh, the, the business stakeholders, industry has welcomed uh, the appointment of Andre Durator. Definitely his, uh, the share price at Nampak uh, is, uh, shows that it, it did not perform at all. It actually lost people a lot of money. There's context to that. But Sounds it, like this guy is good yeah. at taking on poison chalices. Yes, basically. you are now talking yes. about the radical economic transformation people in the ANC Youth League who've been dead until now. They've just woken up and realized there was a white man at the top of ESCOM. Business Leadership SA, the, the, the Black Management Forum, uh, Black Business Council, say, welcome, Mr. Director, and here are, are, are the guidelines. This is what we'd like you to tackle. Uh, it's a difficult challenge. Business Leadership said, we will make people available to help you. Uh, these are the things that you need to start with. Debt, uh, make sure you stabilize the thing. So you have a candidate here. By the way, Cecil today in South Africa only buys electricity from ESCOM for 30% of its needs. It takes care of its, of its of 70%. He was part of that team that built that project, that piped all, uh, gas I think, from I Mozambique. Think the, the, the bottom line is really that we all need Andre Durator to succeed. We really do. We, we need country. him to succeed, definitely. Claudia Malevich, from one white man to another, the DA has chosen John Stenhazen as its leader. Is he going to be a good leader? Look, um, the reality of this is effectively John is a stopgap leader right now. The DA, the reason why, of course, he had to be, they had to elect the interim leader is that Musi Maimani had resigned in October quite dramatically. But the DA will be going to an early Congress come May next year, and they will be going to a policy conference in April next year. So or the, the battle that we have described as the battle for the soul of the DA in terms of where it stands ideologically will be fought in April next year. And then the fact of the matter is delegates will have to decide um, in May whether John has done a solid enough job to basically just almost stabilize things and just steer the ship up until May then. Natasha, what, what are the contours of that battle for the soul of the DA? What well, are the issues? What are the challenges? Well, you know what we have um, in the public, in the in the public arena and in the public space is the DA's struggle with race and its struggle um, over race as a as a 
as a factor uh, in redress and how the, the, the purely liberal faction uh, believe that you know, race is not uh, a proxy for disadvantage, while the other faction believes that you cannot remove that. But there was a very interesting piece by John Kaiser. He's a, he's a former DA speechwriter who wrote that actually, you know, this is not the DA's biggest problem. The DA has a fundamental um, strategic uh, deficit in terms of finding an alternative economic and social and political tra tra trajectory for the country that's different from the ANC that it can offer the people of South Africa. Because as soon as 2009 hit, the DA simply went um, into opposing Jacob Zuma mode. Yes. It has never brought to South Africans a, a solid, um, you know, different offering and uh, an offering for an alternative government. And that, for me, is its, is its central challenge as it goes into its policy conference and its national congress next year. Um, I just wanted to add to what Natasha had said now as well. Um, sorry, but the. The DA, this is one thing that John Stenhausen has said now in um, a lot of his speeches and also in his um, acceptance address to the media on Sunday after he was elected. And that was that the DA cannot continue just attacking the ANC. You basically have to go and explain. So it's great. We're an opposition party. And of course, we have to keep the ANC accountable. But we also have to tell people, well, the ANC is bad, but what will make the DA good? Why should we trust you? And given the fact that we're going into the 2021 local government elections, that's critical. And that'll be a critical test for the DA to see if they can actually turn this around. Because at this stage, the party was just all over the place for about a year and a half with the fight with Patricia DeLol and then Musi coming out. And then they would have to elect a new mayor in Johannesburg come next week when Herman Mashaba's like, resignation takes effect. So there's a lot that the party would have to kind of almost like pull together before people go to the polls in two years' time. So Konati, I mean, is, is, is the DA the opposition that we need? Can no, it become the opposition that we need? It can become the opposition we need. It's certainly not what it is, what we need right now. I, I don't see that changing anytime soon, unless the DA uh, uh, does a deal with some of the major political parties, and, and obviously it cannot work with the AFF, as you can see, but it needs, again, to consolidate the opposition and find an acceptable leader from amongst the other political parties. I'm thinking about someone like Bantu Olomisa, for example, uh, bring the parties together and say, a solid uh, leader with a track record, such as Olomisa, uh, of course, there's a lot of egos on both sides that won't allow that to happen. But as it stands, no, there's, there's no DA as an alternative. And Musi Maimane has actually indicated that he's bringing in a new political party, but it will go the same way of the other political parties that have come through. Natasha, you've actually written your column for the Financial Mail this week on the local government elections. Um, what, what? I know it's early days, but what would your predictions be? Um, well, that, that column was actually looking into the future a little bit. Um, I'm really concerned because I, um, the way you know the way we've been voting as South Africans, we've been voting largely based on how the ANC has has been managing the economy, at least in the last local government election, as well as the 2019 national election. And I'm really concerned that we have you know uh, the, the the reduction of the ANC support in my view, is going to continue. Cyril Ramaphosa's reform agenda um, is a lot slower than people anticipated. And, um, you know, he, seemed qu he seems quite limp-wristed in, 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 in how he's been dealing with, with the reform project. Um, so, so my estimation is that the ANC is going to continue to decline. But the opposition offerings are not very strong. 
So it's going to re uh, result in um, more voter apathy. And, and I think that's bad for, for our democracy, even though it's a worldwide trend. So basically, I'm asking the question that, you know, should we not start thinking about our, uh, about our politics in a different way? Because, and, and perhaps start thinking about electoral reform, um, you know, perhaps a, a different way of electing re uh, our public representatives, perhaps directly. Um, perhaps it's, it's time for that discussion in, very in earnest. Our democracy, I think, depends on it. Warren, does this matter for markets? I mean, would markets be looking ahead, I know it's a long way to go, to local government elections and, and what the outcome might be? Uh, probably not too much on the, the local elections, uh, I would imagine, more, more so uh, just seeing how Cyril Ramaphosa's reform program plays out. And uh, it was clear from my, uh, I had a discussion with uh, the departing CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, who cited the example in Argentina. And the reason why uh, he thinks Cyril is moving so slowly is because he thinks his political mandate is tenuous. So uh, it's quite clear then that if uh, the president felt he could move uh, faster, he would, but he's not moving as fast as he could because he has to maintain uh, his hold on power. Remember, he can obviously be um, uh, subject to a, a vote of no confidence within the ruling party. Uh, so that's that kind of very much sharpens things and it's uh, it's something I think we should all watch is that if he does move too fast in some of these programs uh, we all know what needs to be done but I think Eskom could be uh, a very interesting um, tipping point potentially around whether he still has a political mandate from the unions um, but everyone knows in the country that we need Eskom drastically reformed and quickly. Claudie? So I know you now said, the, Warren, the fact that the markets wouldn't look too closely at the local government elections, mm -hmm. but I believe they should. Mm -hmm. Because fact of the matter is, you don't, go, you don't get services from the presidency. If you are an investor, if you come to this country, you need local government to function. So they should be very invested in who takes over, especially um, big municipalities such as Johannesburg, um, Tswane, of course, the capital city, Cape Town, it's critical if they truly want to like, bring their money to South Africa and be successful and have sustainable like, water and electricity services. Of course, like municipalities do deliver on some of them. It, it would be important to look out for. Claudie, staying with you for a minute, the financial cover story is on Chief Justice Mokheng Mokheng this week. Um, is, has he been the kind of key guardian of our democracy? So the initially, against when, state capture. <laughs> so initially, when the chief justice was, um, when he had to go through the process with the judicial service commission um, to be interviewed, and when the president had appointed him, there was a lot of worry um, because the reaction, and given the fact, and this is the point that we make in the story, given what we now know of state capture, it was not a completely unfair question to say, but will he just be a lackey of the former president? Um, it's. It's turned out basically that the judiciary was almost the last arm of the state that stood up against the assault by state capture. And you would see a lot of what happened during that time when people took the battle to the courts and where the courts stood up and said, this is not okay. The Nkandla judgment would be a perfect example where the executive was absolutely just ignoring um, a chapter nine institution, the public protector. And they said, no, but her findings are binding. It's a constitutionally derived power. And it, so it showed basically that and Mukhoeng wrote that judgment, of course, um, that everybody is equal before the law. And in a place where laws are just ignored and people were just acting with impunity, that was critical. 
Has he surprised you, Sikonati, the Chief Justice? He, he surprised all of South Africa. I mean, Jacob Zuma went out of his way to find Leckie and appointed him. He was also equally surprised by, uh, by his commitment to justice and his commitment to the law and his patriotic dispensation of, the, of, of justice. His leadership of the bench has been absolutely outstanding. So this is one of the few mistakes uh, politically that Jacob Zuma made in terms of the appointments. One was Tulima Donzella. Oh, thank goodness he did. Thank goodness he did. Moving to a little bit of corporate news, uh, Warren. Um, First Rand is uh, the holding structure is being restructured. What does it mean? Yeah, if essentially this it's is a terms. yeah, just a, uh, an unwinding of a partnership uh, between Johan Rupert and and his Remgro Investment Holding Company. Uh, the three entrepreneurs that were the driving force of RMB First Rand for the better part of three decades. And uh, the entity that we now know as First Rand today, which comprises, you know, FNB, First National Bank, yes. First National Bank, and uh, and RMB. So it's it's kind of a, an end of an era in many ways, uh, and it's eff effectively uh, the way I see it is Johan Rupert is giving up indirect control and his massive influence on the banking group that they helped uh, to grow into the country's premier financial institution. End of an era for a premier financial institution. That's all we have time for this week, but please do join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.